Gentlemen, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we are drawing near the end of this section on covenant stipulations. The covenant stipulations are the stipulations that God Himself has given us for how we are to walk with Him as individuals and as a community, especially with respect to the church, the people of God. And we've seen that although God is the one who sovereignly, unilaterally delivered them out of Egypt from slavery, from bondage, just like we've been delivered from bondage of sin, God did that for us. Now He brings us in the wilderness, and here they're on the verge of going into the Holy Land, and He tells us how to live. He saved us not only to bring us home forever in heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, but He saved us to live a different life now, and He brought Israel out to be a different people. We've already seen many ways in which they were different from the nations that were around them. All the Middle Eastern nations, and particularly Egypt, they were to be distinctive. They were to be set apart for God's use. And they were to imitate Him, be like Him, His character. So they received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. We covered that in Deuteronomy 5. And then out of those Ten Commandments, we have these many stipulations, these sort of detailed applications of the Big Ten laws and how we're to live life. And one of you asked me last time something that's very appropriate for today. That is, uh, what place does the law of God have in the Christian life? And really, there's a sense in which Deuteronomy is about this in, in, in many ways. We know that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, We are saved not because of anything we have done. We're not even saved because we believe, because even our belief is polluted and corrupted. Our belief is not perfect. Now, there's a seed of of faith in uh, all of us who trust in Jesus Christ, but there's also a lot of other things like presumption or doubt or unbelief. You know, as the disciples said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So even our belief is covered with unbelief. So none of us could be saved because of our faith because it's not perfect. It's not, it's not acceptable. Furthermore, whatever faith we have was given to us by the Lord Himself. But we know that we're not saved by our own works. And so therefore, once we become saved, then oftentimes we're thinking, well, boy, glad to be done with the law. Uh, well, let's get on to free living now. But then when we look at the Bible, we see, no, we come back to the law as believers. Now, let's, let's look for just a moment about the, uh, what's called the uses of God's law in the Christian life. Let's look at this theologically for just a moment uh, from all of the Scriptures. The first thing that the first use of God's law in the Christian life is the revelation of God's character. We love the law. David said, I love thy law, O Lord. And, of course, he was only talking probably about the first six books of the Bible. So he's saying, I love Deuteronomy. Why did he love it? Because above all things, the law is a revelation of God's character. So when we study the law, even when we're trying to abide by the law, we're abiding by his character. And that's something we want to do. Why? Because we're in love. We love God. We want to be like him. Lord, tell us what you're like. Well, here it is. Uh, keep, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments. Because if you keep my commandments, you will be like me. And if you love me, you'll want to imitate me. So here it is. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the first thing is it reveals its character. The main thing God did on Mount Sinai was to say to Israel, Behold your God. He is holy. The second use of the law, we pick this up especially in Galatians, is that the law leads us to Christ. Paul says that the law is like a tutor. You know, every minor in first century Greco-Roman world, uh, had a tutor. And sometimes the tutor would beat the daylights out of you. If you didn't get out of bed early enough, the tutor would come in and smack you. If you didn't do your schoolwork under the philosopher, tutor would smack you. Uh, it was kind of like that person in your household who wasn't a family member, but they took care of business until you reached majority status. And that's what a tutor was like. And Paul says the law was like your tutor. You were a minor. You hadn't reached the full adulthood that you received at Pentecost in the New Testament. And the law tutored you. And Paul says, where did the tutor tutor you? The tutor tutored you to Christ. And how did the law do that? 
because the law is a perfect revelation of God's character and the law calls you to be a perfect disciple. And guess what? You're not. So what does the law do? The law keeps beating you up. The law keeps killing you. The law keeps condemning you in your flesh. If you're trying to be justified before God, if you're trying to justify yourself before God, the law will kill you every time, no matter what area of your life you want to talk about. Your honesty, your love for your neighbor, your sexual life, your respect for authority, your devotion to God's uh, worship, any area you want to cover, the law will condemn you and tell you that you're not worthy of heaven. And it would be, the law would be correct. So the law tutors you to Christ. The law makes you want to get to Christ because you know that in your flesh there is no good thing. So how are you going to get to heaven? You better run to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus lived the perfect life, and when you put your trust in Him, He gives you a perfect record. It sounds like a fantasy, but the Bible says it's true. When you trust in Him, you get credit for all of His good works, His good words, His good thoughts, everything. You have a perfect record. And when you put your trust in Christ, His work on the cross completely removes your sins. You have Your record is purged. Some of you would like to have that downtown in the courthouse. But you can get it in heaven. You can get your record completely purged. And then you can have your record full of good deeds. Now that's what happens when you come to Jesus Christ. The law drives you to Him because He is the only one who has what you need. So the law serves a very useful function both before we're Christians and afterwards. Now listen, this is not just for non-Christians to drive us to Christ. The law drives you to Christ if you're a believer this morning. Because there, every one of us in our flesh has a tendency to want to build our own record and to stand on our record. I told you about my fraternity brother when we were having uh, nominations for fraternity president. I'll never forget old Stewball sitting in the back with his Schlitz beer and a cigarette. And this guy was just a, a true hellraiser. And everybody got a chance when they got nominated to be president of the fraternity to get up and give a three-minute speech as to why you ought to elect them as president. And they, you know, they'd get up and tell how they were you know, on the honor council or they were president of the student body or they would, they've done this fraternity, this fraternity. Well, they called on Stewball. Somebody nominated him. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget looking back at Stewball and he just sat there with his cigarette, his beer, and he said, I'll stand on my record. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's just as laughable that you would, you would say to the Lord, hey, I'll just stand on my record. I mean, you'd be toast, man. Uh, you deep weeds. So nobody's going to stand on the record, and the believer needs to keep remembering that, and the law helps you remember it. Even though you love the law, it condemns your flesh. And you condemn your flesh, not yourself, but your flesh. There's a difference. When you become a Christian, you get a new self. Your self is in Christ, and that self is protected from all condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. So yourself is protected, but you have sin in the members of your body, says Paul. That's your flesh. And you condemn your flesh along with the law and God and, and the angels and everybody else. So you, that gives you a sense of yourself. You have a proper self-perception that you do have this flesh. It's not in headquarters. Headquarters is Jesus Christ. But the flesh may be in retreat, but it has not gone away and it has not been completely killed off yet. One day it will. So you're in a constant battle from headquarters to take care of flesh. So, yes, you agree with the law. Your flesh is condemned. And that helps the believer because it causes yourself not to flee to the instincts of your flesh, but for yourself to flee to Jesus Christ and His instincts. So the law does that for you as a believer. So the second use of the law is that it drives us to Jesus Christ as our only hope. Now, thirdly, the law guides our walk. This is so important. Uh, it'll leave your finger in Deuteronomy. I promise we'll come back. But turn to, to uh, Romans 3 for just a moment. And Romans makes it very clear. Does, doesn't Paul make it very clear in Romans that no one will be justified in his sight by their human performance? Uh, he says, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. This is, Roman, this is page 2162. Romans 3.19. 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or found righteous, same word, in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, that's what we were just talking about. The second use of the law is that through the law, we become aware of our sin and our sin is condemned in us and our mouth is shut and we stop justifying ourselves based on our moral rectitude or our religious doctrines or anything else we've got. We stop justifying ourselves on the grounds of anything that we've done. But we justify ourselves, verse 21, on the grounds of what Christ has done because look what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we have no righteousness by our own performance. The law teaches us that. It condemns us, drives us to Christ, who alone has the righteousness we need to be found acceptable before God. But then turn all the way down or look all the way at the bottom of page 2163 at the end of Romans 3. And he says... uh, Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do Now look at verse 31. Here's the key. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. Look at this. Last sentence of Romans 3. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It is the one who has fled from the law for his justification who now upholds the law in his Christian life. Do we uphold it perfectly? Heck no. Do we uphold it hoping that that performance will justify us to get us in heaven? No. Because we uphold the law imperfectly, but we uphold it authentically and genuinely. Because when you have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ, let me tell you something else that has happened to you. You've been given a new heart. Jeremiah 31 tells us God will give us a new heart. And he writes his law on the heart so that the law now becomes even intuitive to us. And when the new heart looks at the Word of God and sees His God's will and His desire here, there's a marriage of my soul with what I find in the book. And I, I want to uphold the law of God. The way He says to live, that's the way I want to live. So that's what happens to the... You can turn back now to Deuteronomy 25. That's what happens to the converted person. He now is drawn to the thing that used to condemn him. And the only reason he can be drawn to it is because it no longer condemns him. It now helps him. The unbeliever will not be drawn to the law of God because ultimately it condemns him. He can't stand it. Psychologically, it's impossible for him to embrace the law because it just, unless he's a suicide artist. But when you come under conviction by the Holy Spirit, you begin to be drawn to it. And the only way you can keep coming is if you keep being reassured that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And you're told that and you're under conviction, and you're drawing near to the Bible, and you keep getting a little closer, and you keep being reassured, God loves you. He's provided for your sin. Keep coming, keep coming. And with Christ holding your hand, you can come to the law and let it condemn you because you know you have life. You, have, you get a new self. That's very exciting. After you get that new self, then you're saying, Lord, this law that was condemning me and drawing me to you for salvation, for hope, and for life, I now want it for everyday life. I want it... I want you to show me how to live. Obviously, I didn't know how to live before. I was going the other direction. I was serving other gods. God, would you show me how to live? I want to know. It's kind of like, you know, you get married, you, get, you, you buy the book on how to have sex, how to romance your wife. You, show me how to do this. Read the books. How do you do it? And here's your love manual. Here's how you love the Lord. So it is a guide for life. So no longer, says John, is the law burdensome to us. It was a burden. But God removed the burden of the law and now He gives back the joy of the law. It's like when you have the Holy Spirit in your life 
you've got the engine in your train. But a train's going to do no good if it has no tracks. Train's going nowhere without tracks. You can have all kinds, you keep stoking the, you know, put the coal in the furnace, you know. Get that train going. But without tracks, you're not going anywhere. The law are are your tracks. So the Holy Spirit is the engine. The law is the tracks, and you have to have both, the power of God in your life and the tracks to run on for your Christian life. That's the reason that the psalmist in Psalm 119 just speaks these encomiums, these praises, these pions of thanksgiving to the Lord for the law because the law continues to deliver him out of the clutches of sin. Not for justification, but for sanctification. So we're delivered not only from the penalty of the law by justification, but through sanctification, we're delivered through the power of the law. I'm sorry, the power of sin. So we're delivered from the penalty of sin in justification, and we're delivered from the power of sin in sanctification, and the law is a necessary partner to do that. The Holy Spirit enlightening us so that we can understand the law of God and apply it in our daily lives. Now, of course, when you go to the Old Testament, as we'll see today in the text, you don't just take the law literally as it's written for 3,500 years ago and do exactly what it says here. We'll see. Please don't do exactly what is given to Israel to do in the theocracy in the Old Testament. Remember, we're no longer in a theocracy. So you take the law out of a theocracy and you bring it into a a context of dispersion, diaspora, which is what the Christians are now. So we have to be very careful with our interpretation. But nonetheless, the intent behind the law, the holiness of the law, the truth of the law, the equity of the law is indeed brought into today. And we must do everything that we can. I think you've seen that in Deuteronomy. Let's take every verse seriously. Of course, we don't apply it it the same way we would if we were in a theocracy. But we take that verse very seriously. We say, what does it mean today? And do our best with it because it is the law of God. Same way with every other part of the Scriptures. Now, fourthly, notice that the law of God guides nations. Have we not seen how important this is? We can't just say, you know, everybody who's accused by the police is just going to have to fend for themselves. Have we not seen that? That when you have poor people who can't afford a lawyer, that it is our job to try to find them one? That we can't just dismiss the poor and say, you know, they should have gone to school. And any kid in this country can do it. He can just wake up, and if he has enough ambition... He can live the right kind of life and get an education. We've seen that's total baloney. And that the Old Testament shows us we have an obligation to the poor. As Don was saying earlier, some of you get involved with Elsie Ball. Elsie Ball is our business. Every neighborhood is our business. We've seen that in the law. Doesn't that help guide us? Hasn't Deuteronomy shown us how to take care of the poor? That you can't glean all the wheat from your field? That you must leave something for the poor? And haven't we seen that, that the law of economics is a little bit more than Adam Smith laid out for us? That the Bible has a little bit more to say about that because we live in community with other people? Now, obviously, we've had to take the law out of a theocracy and apply it to diaspora. But even when you take it out, there's a general equity when you put it back in into diaspora. And we've tried to apply the general equity of the law. Haven't we seen that that marriage, divorce, and remarriage and the way we deal with our children has a lot to do with society and that we're obligated by that. Why? Because of the law of God. We have to be careful as Christian men and men how we go into politics. We're not out there quoting Bible chapters and verses, but we are aware of Bible chapters and verses and we are aware of the general equity of the law of the Bible and we're trying to bring the general fairness and equity of the law and the compassion of the law Bring it into effect in civil society. And so we've seen this fourth purpose here of the law very much in Deuteronomy. It very much applies to our citizenship as men who belong to a country or to a city. So that's how the law applies, even though you're not justified under the law. You're not under the law for your acceptance. But if I could put it this way reverently, you are under the law in terms of where your heart wants to be. You want to be instructed by the law. Why? Because you love God and it's a revelation of His character and you want to be like Him. It's that simple. 
Now let's begin to look at 25 because here what we're looking at is several ways in which we men must be very careful to administer the law of God. And there's several applications here of how this is to be done impartially. When we administer the law in every situation in life, whether it's your family or your business or your church or society, your neighborhood, you administer it fairly. You know, it's uh, the picture of justice is the, the blind woman holding the scales. She's impartial. Well, that's not bad. But an even better picture is lift your eyes up with your eyes open on the Lord. He's your only audience. He's the only one you're partial toward. And you are administering on His behalf when you vote. You are administering on His behalf when you serve. You are administering on His behalf when you try to take care of the poor. You are administering with your eyes wide open on the glorious face of Jesus Christ Himself. So we want to be careful how we administer the law. Let's take, uh, let's take care to study this ourselves. There are several areas of interest uh, to Moses here as the people get ready to go into the Holy Land. Let's look at it, chapter 25. If there is a dispute between men and women, and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than, those, than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Let's stop right there. Verses 1 through 3. We're saying administer God's law impartially in the courtroom. The courtroom is important to us. Sometime, sometime, why don't you do it sometime this year? Just go down to the courtroom, go in there and watch how justice is administered. If you've got a, a friend who's a jurist, get them to give you the special tour. Get an explanation. And understand the different types of courts and how they function. Some of you wish you didn't know so much. But uh, find out, because why? We're all responsible for those courts. We're citizens. We have influence. We can vote. We can write letters. We can get our friends to run for judge. We can do all kinds of things. We can talk to our lawyer friends who may have more influence. They're members of the bar. But let's take responsibility for the courtroom. Why? First of all, in the courts we must be sure that guilt is assigned and innocence is assigned. The guilty party needs to be labeled in his actions as the guilty one. And the one who is innocent needs to be labeled as innocent. We need right and we need wrong. We need good and we need evil. We need innocent and we need guilty. And it needs to be applied properly, impartially, regardless of how much money somebody has, how fancy a lawyer they have. We need to be sure that we're doing everything to assign guilt and innocence properly. And that is a huge task. Those of you in the business know. Secondly, and, and you know, if, if we don't do that right, I'm telling you what, everything collapses. Everything collapses. If you are a father in your home and you can't label right and wrong and you can't assign guilt and innocence and then you can't administer sanctions properly, your house collapses. And so does this city if we don't do it right. Secondly, look what he says in verse 2. We must administer sanctions judiciously. In other words, you've noticed here that the judge did not hand, hand the person over to a couple of brutes to go beat the man up. The judge stays there. The judge is sure that we have criminal justice. Not just criminal punishment. Criminal justice. The judge himself is involved in the sanctions, not just the sentence. And so, sometimes I think that we, we don't carry that out R right here, right where we are. Are the judges involved all the way through the process? Do we have someone judiciously administering sanctions as well as what happens in the courtroom? Thirdly, protect the dignity of the convicted. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more. And you know, of course, later on in, in Jewish uh, criminal justice, they would do 40 less one to be sure that they did not exceed the 40. Uh, in fact, we know that because Paul himself was whipped uh, several times with 40 less one, and he tells about it. Why was that? Uh, of course, this seems very brutal to us, you know, to tie a man down and beat him up. But on the other hand, in the Middle East, this was considered compassionate. 
and very highly regulated. It was distinctive of Israel. Why? Because the criminal does not lose his dignity. Just because you broke a law, even a big one, and you face sanctions and you're punished, you're no less a man. And when society treats you like less than a man and degrades you, now they've gone from criminal justice to inhumanity. And when our prisons are absolutely filthy and out of control, and all we're trying to do is warehouse people and keep them off the streets, that's not criminal justice. That's indignity and inhumanity. So we must be careful that even though, and there's some people who are, you know, if you've been to the prisons, they, they're, they're emotionally, so many of them completely whacked out. Uh, 90 to 99% of them uh, didn't have a father when they were growing up. Uh, they're, they're, a lot of them are completely out of control. I understand all this. So you have to use measures to bring order. But I'm saying that there has to be a careful guarding of the dignity of the person. You see this here in the Old Testament. We're being taught how to handle our own criminal system. Now let's look at verse 4. He says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Boy, there's some of us preachers who love this verse, man. We love it. Now what he's saying here in the first instance is administer God's law impartially on the farm, for heaven's sakes. Look how important justice is. It applies to your animals. Is that not incredible? He's, he's saying if, you're, if this animal is doing some work for you, you feed the thing. You don't just drain that animal of all of its energy and not reward him with food. Uh, Proverbs, I think I listed the verse here, uh, Proverbs 12.10 says, A righteous man is gentle even with his animals. Remember that when you think about kicking the dog. I mean, I'm serious. Be careful with that dog and that cat. You know, I had a, I had a high school uh, English teacher who told, told us guys what his grandmother did with cats. She didn't like cats. He said, here's how she handled cats. <laughs> okay, so much for the cat. Uh, maybe that is merciful. You're going to kill a cat. You may as well do it quickly. But what, what's being said here is your sense of justice and impartiality and fairness goes down even to animals. And, of course, Paul picks up on this, doesn't he, when he's talking about his own pay and the pay of others who are teaching in the church in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 5. And he says, you shall not muzzle the ox. Talking about pastors uh, and those who are teaching. He says, you, you give, them, give them a double honor. And that's the reason you, you call sometimes the gift you give to someone who speaks an honorarium. It's a double honor. He's basically saying, he's the ox treading out the grain. Give him some food every once in a while. We've talked about this before. Now, those of you who are at Second Presbyterian, you can just close up your ears and think about something else because uh, you're so generous to our staff here. It's really not an issue. Uh, if, if maybe the issue goes the other way. We ought to give some of the grain back. But if you're in a church where you don't think your pastor is being adequately supported, you really need to do something about that. Because here, here's what Moses is saying. Look, justice applies even to your dumb ox. Now, if it applies to your ox, Paul's argument is a fortiori. It's to the stronger case. If, if you're supposed to be gentle with you're supposed to feed an ox, don't you think you should feed, feed your teacher, for heaven's sakes? That's what, he, that's what Paul is saying. So here you have... Administering God's law impartially, even on the farm, and even if the ox happens to be a preacher. Now, let's look at verses 5 through 10. And here we're going to see that we administer God's law impartially in the family as well. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife, get this, shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pull off. Don't you love that one? 
Now, some of you are thinking, I kind of wish like I lived in the Old Testament. Some of you, depending upon who your sister-in-law might be, are thinking, thank God for the New Testament. I don't know. <laughs> but the point here, and you know, every once in a while we have some women to listen to this, so I just want you to know I'm really sorry. Uh, didn't, didn't mean to make fun of people. Uh, uh, but notice what's being done here. Uh, we know that obviously women had no protection in this day in, in second millennium B.C. in Israel without the protection of either her father uh, or her husband, sometimes her brother, or her son. So here's a case of a woman who has not, through marriage, had the privilege of receiving her son. When you receive a son, that's your retirement account. That's your 401K. So here's a woman who has no 401K, and it's the duty of the remaining brother to do his duty to give her a son. Now you may say, why would he not want to do that? That's hard for some of you to imagine. Well, maybe he had no libido. I don't know. But more than likely, the reason he wouldn't have wanted to do it is that if she has a son, it's going to reduce his estate. Here's why. If my brother dies and he has no heir, guess who gets the estate? Moi. If he has a widow and she wants me to go into her and have a son, well, now, he gets my brother's estate. So I lose a lot of the farm. It was strict selfishness and greed. And so here is what is being told us in the Bible. We've got a responsibility, first of all, for our own family. And what you'll do is you'll look at the First Timothy, and you'll see in First Timothy, Paul gives us the New Testament version of this. A man's worse than an unbeliever if he doesn't take care of his own family. Now, that begins with your nuclear family. Well, it actually begins with your family of origin, your mom and your dad. You've got to take care of your wife and your children. And then you have some obligation to your extended family to do the best that you can. And there are some minimal things that you do. And if they're in desperate straits, guess who's the first one to call on? Cousin Ralph. I mean, you're it. If, if there's no son or there's no one closer to them. So we all are aware of our family connections and we're surveying the landscape and we're being sure that everybody has justice, everybody has compassion, everybody has care. That's what Paul is saying. And if nobody has any care, bring the widows, he says, into the church and put them on the list of widows. We'll put them to work and we'll feed them. We'll treat them like family, he says. If they have no nuclear family or no extended family, we'll become their family. We'll give them household duties and they will eat here in the church. That's what they did in the New Testament. And gentlemen, whatever the equivalent of that is, wherever we look around, and people don't have the proper care of their families, here's what you've got to do in your church. You have to figure out how you're going to take care of them because they become your family. And when we are born again, we are made brother and sister with other people who are born again by the same father. We all have the same father. That makes us brothers. And so we've got to be brotherly, uh, in our care for one another. That's the New Testament equivalent. But notice here that it is sh- selfishness that keeps a man from caring for his own family in the proper way. Now, I know we all have dysfunctional cousins. We all have people who would take advantage of us. I'm not suggesting that you continue someone's bad habits or encourage their bad habits by giving them funds they shouldn't have. I'm just simply saying the bare essentials. You know what I'm saying. We have to keep them from starving. We have to put a roof over their head. We have to be sure that they have a place to sleep at night. It's that kind of care. But notice here what else we're taught. That not only are you responsible for your family, but you're responsible for the families of others. So if here in in a negative, corrective way, if a brother didn't take care of his family, well, bring him before all the elders. Bring him to Amen Bible study. Put him up front. Bring the woman in. She jerks the shoe off his foot, which was a major disgrace, spits in his eye and says, you're a man who's had his sandal pulled off. And that's his nickname for the rest of his life. The church is saying, if that's the way you're going to handle people, you'll be labeled that way for the rest of your life. So the church is taking responsibility here for the vulnerable people. And uh, this was generally true throughout the Middle East. This was a way in which I guess I could say, honestly, Israel was not distinctive here. God is simply saying, why don't you all at least be as, as caring for widows as, as the unbelieving nations are? And then, uh, so we know, notice that families are held accountable. 
Now, uh, before we leave this, uh, what's called leveret marriage, uh, the word levir, L-E-V-I-R in Hebrew means brother. So this is brotherly marriage, leveret marriage. Before we leave it, let's, let's, we, we can't escape what you, you see I noted here, Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. This is the case where the Sadducees came to Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees are the theological liberals. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection and so on. They don't believe in miracles. And the Sadducees come to Jesus challenging Him about the resurrection. Not, not Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of believers. The Pharisees believed it. Sadducees did not. So they come challenge Jesus. And you know what they use as a case to challenge Him? They use this case of leveret marriage. And they say, Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, in the life after the resurrection, uh, suppose you have a woman who is married to a man and he dies and she marries his brother and he dies and there's seven of these boys in the family she marries all of them. Whose wife will she be in the resurrected life? Well, they think they've really stumped Jesus. And Jesus says, you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's for starters. And then he says, don't you know that there's no marriage in heaven? That we're like the angels in that sense. We don't have human marriage in heaven. Your marriage is temporary. It lasts only as long as you live. And then we're married to Christ. So he's saying, you don't know the afterlife. You don't know the Scriptures here. You don't know the power of God and how He can take the things you do in this life and completely transform them in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't it amazing how we can take something that was intended for justice to care for widows and we twist it around to disprove one of the cardinal doctrines of biblical faith? It happens all the time. Uh, Let's look at verses 11 and 12. And you see here that we're to minister God's law impartially in the boxing ring. You're going to love this one. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. Boy, I've been waiting all year to teach on this text. Notice first of all, boys will be boys. The Bible... Probably somewhere. Probably it's in Hezekiah 10.4. Boys shall not fight. It's probably in there somewhere. We're not supposed to fight. But notice once again. God says, but if you do, (laughs) there are rules. (laughs) Boys will be boys. I remember when I I went to all boys high school. And uh, so, I mean, it was just standard practice. About every month, somebody's going to be in the wrestling room for a boxing match. And the only, I mean, if you, it was like the old days. If you challenge to a duel, you cannot turn it down. I mean, unless you're going to be a real chicken and, you know, take the shoe off your foot and spit in your eye and call you a guy who had his shoe pulled off. I don't know. But you'd be a real chicken. So if somebody challenges you to a duel, unless he was obviously, you know, eight feet tall and 400 pounds, you kind of had a duty to fight the fight. So, you know, uh, we had fights and the faculty allowed it. This all boys school. The only rule was they, they changed after a while. It used to be bare knuckle fisting. Uh, you know, fist fight. But they changed the rule because some mamas got upset. So you had to go in there and you get boxing gloves and just beat the daylights out of each other. You know what's amazing? I mean, you all know this as guys. You have to get beat up or beat somebody else up. You end up being best friends for life. It's just amazing. Boys will be boys and the Bible knows it. And so it's making provision for fighting fair, for fist fighting. All right, get this. Now, I love the rule because there are some things worse than getting whipped. And that's to have somebody grab you in the wrong place. Uh, and I want you to know, this is so bad. It's the only place in the Bible where there is a penalty of mutilation of somebody physically for breaking a law. Now, le- besides lex talionis, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Other than that, this is the only place. Now, in Assyrian laws, there are all kinds of sanctions. You tear off an arm here, cut out an eye here, chop off a leg there. I mean, they were brutal. And one thing Israel's known for is judicial restraint uh, in terms of the sanctions that are applied to people. You don't go mutilating their bodies, except for here. Now, besides the obvious, you know, you know, now, honey, you just go over there 
go see grandma. I'm going to go over here and fight. You know, don't bring your wife in the first place. That's your big mistake because she's likely to do anything. And you're going to end up with a wife without a right hand if you're not really careful. Uh, but besides the obvious, here's what's being said. In the same way that we protect the 401K of the widow, we're also going to protect the man's ability to have a child. It really has to do with perpetuating the family. That's the reason these two texts, I think, are together. So just be very careful. You don't pull someone's jewels off just because you want to win a fight. Uh, so there are rules to fighting, and some of you who are in a fight right now, some of you that may be in litigation, let me tell you something, there are rules, and they go beyond just what's legal. It's just amazing to me how people, when, as soon as they get in the courtroom, they think, now this is no time to be a Christian. I mean, I'm a Christian, but this is no time to be a Christian. Or, you know, I need to hire a lawyer who's not a Christian because he'll really get the most for me. And somehow you think that because you go into a fight that all is fair in love and war, all is not fair in love and war, all is not fair in litigation, all is not fair in a fist fight, that there is restraint. You can see this from the Bible. So, gentlemen, uh, administer God's law impartially, even in the boxing ring. Uh, Then look in verses 13 through 16. We're going to see that we administer God's law impartially in business. This is very, very important, repeated several times in the Bible. You shall not, verse 13, have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an an abomination to the Lord your God. It was the practice among many that when they're buying, they use the large, they use the heavy weight because they want to get as much as they can. When they're selling, they put the heavy weight back in their bag and they pull out the light weight, you know, on the scales. You put a weight over here and then you match it with the weight of whatever you're buying or selling. And so I'll pull out, when I'm, when I'm selling, uh, I'll pull out the light weight because I want to give as little as possible. This was common practice among the thieves who were in business in the Middle East. And Amos talks about it. Micah talks about it. He says, not only are the pagans doing it and they're going to pay for it, you guys are doing it. You've borrowed their practices. You're acting like a bunch of Mideastern merchants who think that they can rip people off, especially people who are not in their families. You think you can do this to anybody you want? Give me one set of weights. And those of you who think there should be an one set of interest rates for your friends and one set of interest rates for people that you just soon not do business with. This is, he says here, it's a total insult to God. It's an abomination. Your business just went from being a sanctuary where God dwells to being a hell house because you're treating people unfairly and you're giving your friends the better deal instead of really trying to serve the poor and the marginalized and those who do not have their hands on the levers of justice in the society. He's saying you better be very careful about this because I know what you've got in your bag. All right, lastly, we must administer God's law impartially in witnessing. This is difficult. Hang with me. Verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Wow. Basically, here's what God is saying. We've seen this from the beginning of our study of Deuteronomy that the task that the Israelites had was to go into an unholy land and make it holy. And they would do that in a number of ways. First of all, they had to be the holy people. God's severest sanctions are reserved for His own people. His severest sanctions are reserved for His own people. If you think He's picking on the Amalekites... Read on, brothers. The first ones he addresses are his own people. As 
uh, is said in the New Testament. Judgment will begin with the house of God. But it's also true that His judgment extends to every nation. You get this in Amos 1 and 2. Those of you who remember the study in the Minor Prophets some years ago, we saw that God will address injustices in other nations that don't profess Him to be the Lord. Why? Because whether they profess it or not, He is God of all the nations and He is the judge of all the nations and they will face Him in the end. And He reminds us of that on occasion. And one of the tasks that they had in going into the Holy Land was not only, first of all, to deal with themselves, to purge the evil from their midst, a refrain that we've seen over and over again in Deuteronomy. That was the first task, purge the evil from your midst. But then you must also purge the evil from the Holy Land. And because they were a theocracy, that is, God Himself personally is the king of the entire nation, anybody who opposed that nation actually opposes God. Now we've seen we're now in diaspora. We don't have a nation, including this nation. Every nation where God's people are, we're in dispersion. We're, we've, we're, we're, we're pilgrims. We're passing through. Our nation is the new heavens and the new earth. That's our citizenship. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior from there. Meanwhile, we do have dual citizenship. Our minor citizenship is in nations, and we take care to administer the general equity of the law in those nations where we live. But in this particular case, they had a positive law from God to go in and purge out a people who had been evil for centuries. And we've seen this earlier on in Deuteronomy. Their evil piled up for hundreds of years and God finally said, judgment now comes and you're going to be my instrument of judgment. Now how does that apply to us? It applies this way. When we present the gospel of Christ, pleading with people to become Christians, What is one of the first essential elements in our message? It is that God's judgment stands over all of humanity. That every man is now under His judgment. And that His judgment that went upon the Amalekites, who you see ripped off the tail of Israel, which means those who were sick, the infirmary that was slow, was at the tail end of the procession through the wilderness. That's who the Amalekites attacked. Merciless. No rules in fighting at all. Completely wicked. That God is going to judge everyone just as He judged the Amalekites. Israel was used to judge the Amalekites and God's angels and probably us too in the last day will be used by Him to judge all wickedness. Because we're told that we'll even judge angels. And in that last day when our great warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes back finally to cleanse the land of all of its wickedness. We will have the high privilege of being His warriors and His soldiers, I believe. Maybe I'm just thinking like a man with too much testosterone, but it seems to me in Revelation we're recruited into this victorious army. That will be our day. And God says, don't you be vengeful now. Don't you be a man of revenge now. Because when you do that, all you're doing is revealing that you don't believe in the last day. Because revenge is going to come in living color at the end. So that's the reason that we're men of compassion and pity rather than men of revenge. That's the reason that when we share the gospel, instead of taking other people's heads off, like some religions do, we get our heads taken off. We sacrifice ourselves because we know where we're going and we know what the final judgment is. But notice, just as the Israelites were commanded to exercise God's judgment, even when it's not distributive judgment, it's retributive justice. It's God's retribution on wickedness. And they were commanded to be His agents. So are you. How are you doing it today? Well, you announce God's coming. His coming judgment. As John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. Now what happens to Israel? Do they destroy the Amalekites? No. You can read on in First and Second Samuel. David, David is still dealing with these wicked Amalekites who are still taking the tail off of Israel because they didn't do what he said in the first instance. Are we doing the job that we're supposed to do in witnessing? No. Every year I find something new published that's very popular in the press about somebody else who is diminishing the judgment and justice of God, including books that have come out just this spring from people who call themselves evangelicals who don't want to bear the burden of a God who's not only loving and kind and compassionate, but a God who is just and holy and pure. 
And we serve a God who is all of those things. And most of the time, men will want to be more popular with other men by not carrying out the impartial administration of the witnessing of who God really is in the fullness of His character. And we don't say it angrily. We say it with tears and pleading our fellow neighbors to come to Christ because God does judge all the wickedness in the world. It's part of our message. And Paul says, so to some people you smell like death and that's the reason they avoid you. But to some people who hear the message and believe it and take the right actions, you are the saver of life. And you're not going to be the saver of life if you truncate the message that God has given us to take to the nations. So, you see how the law of God applies. It applies even in your witnessing. You can't properly lead someone to Christ without properly revealing the holiness and justice of God and that His justice demands that He, the ultimate judge, repay all sin because He is assigning guilt and innocence properly and He will see that proper sanctions are applied. He is the just judge and He has sent us out as His children to plead with people to be reconciled to the one truly holy being in the universe. That is the ultimate application of the impartial justice of God. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your law that has revealed Your character to us, has led us to faith in Jesus Christ, many of us in this room, and that now stands before us as believers as the path, the tracks upon which we will now run our train and provides for us the light and the wisdom to plead with those in civil authority to conform our civil society even to the pleasure and the will of God. Help us in every realm to apply your law impartially that we may walk with you and enjoy you in covenant life that we may be the people who know that we're carrying out the holy orders of our great God. Would you bless every man in this room and grant to us the knowledge that you've provided the perfect solution for lawbreakers like ourselves, that you've provided the one who finally kept the law in toto and the one who laid down his life to pay the penalty for every lawbreaker who will put his trust in you. And we ask that today we'll find our rest completely in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.